Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am on the line with Noah Gift. Noah is a consulting CTO and professor at UC Davis and was recently CTO of a sports company, Score Sports. Uh, Noah, welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI. Hi, glad to be here. Uh, It's great to have you on the show. It is our tradition here to have our guests introduce themselves to the audience. And uh, why don't you do that and tell us a little bit about how you got involved in AI and machine learning? Yeah, so I have, I think, a pretty unusual background in that uh, for a period of my life, when I was about 10 years old, I worked in television and film. I grew up in Los Angeles, so I had this other career as a teenager, and it, it culminated in working as an um, editor for ABC Network News on you know, national news. Um, you know, I, I remember distinctly cutting a story about O.G. Simpson and passing that live on the air. Oh, and, wow. Yeah, so I had this whole can other... we just put push pause on that? Yeah. <laughs> like, how did that how did that happen? Is that like what, did you start as like the typical child star thing and find your way into the the quote unquote back office or editing or something like that, or was it a totally different path from what we might imagine? Well, it was totally different in that my dad had a had television production company, so I, I guess it's a little bit like how you know there's kids now that are writing iPhone apps at 10 mm-hmm. because their dad was a programmer well my dad worked in television and he had his a company and i i was working with him um i guess as an apprentice television camera you know microphones editing just knew all the, awesome. the all the stuff and then it just it culminated in i eventually got it it's again it's a lot like a programmer you get a job as an editor at the time is you, you had to know the equipment you go into uh you know, a, a lot like a programming test, you go to, let's say, ABC, and you say, hey, I, I'm an editor. And they say, okay, well, let's see if you can edit. And they give you a test. And if you pass it, then then they hire you. And so I passed it. And I worked for the news for a while. And this is 1992, I think, uh, 1992, 93. Okay. And at the, at the time, I was, I was getting paid like $500 a day. So for a teenager, that was, that was, that was very nice. <laughs> I was, I was yeah. very happy with that salary. Um, and then I just, I was actually given the opportunity to do that as a full-time job. But, uh, I, even though my dad was actually encouraging me to ne- never go to college, I, I was, <laughs> I, I rebelled and decided to go a different path. And I think part of it was that I've always been really interested in sports mm-hmm. and, um, I, I was competitive at basketball, football track and, and in college, um, did decathlon and there, basically, there's a period in my life where there's I wanted to be a professional athlete. I didn't care what sport. It was track, basketball, um, mm. even at one point, ultimate frisbee. I remember <laughs> I, there, there was in my in my mid twenties. There's there's a guy that was trying to you know get me onto his pro ultimate frisbee or semi pro I guess ultimate frisbee team. But um, that that's probably why I eventually ended up getting a bachelor's degree from Cal Poly San Luis Obispo was in nutritional science was just, that was my passion. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I, there was a period after I graduated from Cal Poly that, that I was training to play professional basketball. And, um, uh, I was training with some people that played on teams in Europe and I, you know, had some tryouts scheduled. And, and then at the same time I was, my backup plan was to, um, get a job somewhere. And I I happened to get a job offer at Caltech. And so it was a very difficult decision for me to go, oh, wow, this is uh, Caltech or 
try to play professional basketball and make, you know, 20 grand a year. Yeah. And, um, I decided to work at Caltech. Uh, you know, I still in a way have some regrets about that, but I, 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 I got a job at Caltech and I, I really, it from there, it changed a lot of the way I think. And it, that's really what got me interested in AI was some of the people I met. Um, I mean, really changed my life. I learned about Python there, uh, back in 2000, nobody used Python. Uh, but it was just something that all my friends did. So I figured I had to do it. <laughs> and then uh, I met a lot of um, really famous AI people it, just accidentally. It's like I was like Forrest Gump. I mean, uh, the Feifei, who is in charge of AI at Google, I remember having dinner with her, just randomly meeting her. Um, Christoph Koch uh, at the CNS lab, uh, who is in charge of uh, Paul Allen's Institute, just mm-hmm. some guy that I knew. Um, one of my really good friends and mentors was this guy named Dr. Bogan, who did the first hemispherectomy. Um, I remember going to his house all the time. Hemispherectomy? Hemispherectomy, removing half of the brain. Uh, it, it, was a, wow. it, was a, it was a procedure that was done to, um, you know, they didn't do it that often, but it was done for epileptic patients that had, you know, basically debilitating seizures. Okay. And uh, he was working under Christoph Koch, and, and he became a mentor to me and I, I distinctly remember having many conversations at dinner about neural networks and how they're used to uh, figure out who would be uh, a fighter pilot. And, and so all these ideas about AI and neural networks ha- were, were percolating. At the time, I was, you know, an okay, you know, I would say uh, amateurish, you know, sysadmin type programmer. Mm-hmm. But so in a way, it's funny, I was much more interested in AI f- back then in my early 20s. Um, and, and in fact, before I was even interested in programming, and I remember talking to a professor at, at Caltech, and he'll probably, you know, he'll probably not admit to this, but I remember, remember asking him, like, hey, I'm so excited about AI. And he said, oh, you shouldn't even uh, think about that. It's a dead field. It's a... Uh, you know, AI winter, you know, just you're wasting your time. And I, I just remember thinking, well, I think I'll, I think I'll be interested in it anyway. <laughs> and, and I had, I actually set this goal for myself that, um, and it's, I think I've achieved it, which is that by the time I'm 40, I wanted to be doing something serious in AI and I wanted to be fluent in several programming languages. And, and that's pretty much happened. And nice. I think, yeah, it was part of it was just the people I met. And, and also, I guess I've always been motivated by people that tell me, maybe it's the sports part of me, but people have told me, oh, oh, you can't do that. And it's like, oh, okay, well, that's exactly what I'm going to do then. <laughs> <laughs> very nice, very nice. And so you, uh, Caltech led to a bunch of other places and, most recently, before you went off on your own to do consulting, you were at a startup called Score Sports. Is that right? Yeah. So, so Score Sports was interesting to me uh, again b- because of the 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 athletic component to it. I, I had before that worked in film and had a whole other history of you know what a digital avatar and Disney feature animation and Sony Imageworks, really cool film companies, and where I did a lot of Python programming, but then. Uh, and I, then I spent a long time in, in startups and, you know, doing that in San Francisco. But then I, there was a part of me that was a little not perfectly fitting in, I guess, with the culture of San Francisco. And that, and that again, I've always been really athletic and into sports. And I, there, there's, there's almost like an anti-healthy 
I think it's changed now, but there's almost like this, like, oh, you exercise. Oh, that's weird. You know, like, uh, at least I felt that way at, at startups. Maybe, maybe I was, I had a complex, <laughs> I don't know. But, but um, I really liked that this was a sports company and people worked out together and they, they actually did um, mixed martial arts at lunch. And so it was really interesting to me. I was like, oh, okay, this is, this is a, this is a really cool culture. Mm-hmm. And uh, I started there. We really didn't have a product. And we we struggled a little bit initially to build something. In the first three months I was there, though, we we were able to build a um, a uh, lightweight fantasy app that had a lot of traction. And we were like, okay, this is this is maybe we're onto something here. And we were very fortunate though because we had some um, secret uh, weapons, I guess. And one of our secret weapons was Brett Favre. He was on the board of the company. And, you know, he, he was, we knew that if we built something that was marginally useful, that having him a part of it would, would really take off. And so the idea for the company was that we were going to be a sports specific social network. And I guess in a way thinking about Facebook and it's funny now, there's a lot of controversy around Facebook because of, um, trolls and, you know, echo chambers and everything. Yeah. Fake news. And, and, uh, and, and at the time, though, I think really the, the premise was a good premise, which is there are people that just really don't want to be on Facebook. They just want to talk about sports. Right. And that was the idea was that they don't want to they don't want to read fake news. They don't want to talk about politics or religion. They just want to talk about sports. And so that's what we started to build. And it took us about a year. And we built um, a, a social network. And I remember we had you know almost no traffic. And one of the first things we did, though, was we were pretty smart in that we we used Brett Favre to create a prediction around the NFL draft in 2014. And this is when Johnny Manziel was was a big deal. He was in the NFL draft and and he talked about it and posted it on score and then and then linked to it from Facebook and Twitter. And it just I mean, it was like, uh, you know, one of the biggest uh, traffic days of all time. Almost, you know, it, it was it was I think we got uh something like 5 million page views in an hour, like just incredible. Yeah. Just incredible traffic. And then some of the comments were, you know, I'm crying. I'm so happy that Brett Favre's talking to me and liking my posts. And we're like, okay, this we're onto something here. And so as we, as we, we knew that there were, and this is where some of the ML and AI stuff comes in is that originally the thought process too was to, was to provide, um, uh, tools for athletes to better engage with their fans, um, make revenue. We felt like they were getting ripped off by Facebook um, in that if, if you look at the organic reach of some of these athletes, you know, they're, they're going down to one to 3%. And so we, we, the idea was that we wanted to, you know, give intelligent tools to athletes, create a, a specific channel. And then we knew that based on some of the historical data that some celebrities were like Brett Favre created a lot of traffic. So the thought process was instead of what typical startups do by buying a lot of Facebook ads, we were going to create organic growth by partnering with athletes and, but first finding the athletes that were influential partnering with them. And then because we were helping them, it, it was a synergistic relationship and that not only um, would we get growth from the platform, but 
when you pay somebody, oftentimes they're very friendly with you. And so they're, <laughs> they're open to other opportunities. And so that led to two business um, units in the company that I helped develop along with some other people, which were um, influential marketing uh, part of the company, which ultimately grew to millions of dollars of revenue uh, and culminated. Probably the biggest deal we had was with Machine Zone and Conor McGregor. And then we also had a merchandising part of our company. So okay. we, pay, we pay athletes, we find the best athletes, they, they create growth on our platform because we have this, um, you know, great relationship with the athletes. They're then open to do more deals, which are other influencer marketing deals and also merchandising. But the, the, the beginning stage there was that as we as we learned from the data uh, that was coming in from the page views and where it came from, we, we did realize that there was something there that we could we could use machine learning on to enhance and really the, 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 the core of it was that we were able to look at signals um, on Facebook, look at signals on, on Twitter, and look at signals in other sources, including Wikipedia, and create an algorithm that told us you know, who were the most influential um, athletes. And there were some stars that we discovered, and one of them was Conor McGregor. And Conor McGregor, I think, is a very interesting one in that uh, I did this talk at Strata just um, – uh, a week ago, but when when we partnered with him in 2014, I think his average likes per post were something like 50. You know, which I think I've gotten posts that are you know 50 50 likes on them. I mean, maybe not all of them, but it, and then if you look at now, it's something like um, I don't know 4,000 or 5,000. And so he's I think had 7,000 times uh, engagement growth in the last four years. And what and that was that was one of the things that we noticed in, in terms of um, in signals was that is that the follower counts are really and I, I probably people know this by now but follower counts are really meaningless because of the bots and people buying things really the thing to look at is is what is in in relative terms what's the engagement you know our our, our you know if the median level engagement is 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 very high in, in relative. Uh, percentage to your followers, then that means you're a star and you're going to be eventually growing, uh, you know, like Conor McGregor, for example. So those are the kind of signals we look for. And then as we got more athletes that we partnered with, our, we would get more historical data and the algorithm would get better. And um, in a nutshell, it did lead to us getting, uh, for a period of time, uh, a sustained, uh, you know, tens of millions of monthly active users on our, on our platform. And then ultimately culminated in a partnership with um, one of the largest soccer clubs in the world, which is Bayern Munich. Um, but like I think ninety-something uh, percent of startups, we ultimately ultimately failed. But there was definitely a good run there. Can you talk a little bit about how you used machine learning in that example? I think the way you set up the problem, it sounds like simple math, right? Divide aggregate number of likes by number of followers, or something along those lines. Uh, but it sounds like you. We're doing something else involving collecting historical data and training a model. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, there was definitely a super. I mean, and this is one of the things I think is interesting about machine learning and um, in reading books or or teaching. At, you know, in teaching my class at, at Davis when I'm talking to this uh, about this is that it's easy to get a book that. You, you read about some algorithm or scikit-learn or Kaggle. It's like, oh, look, I have this supervised learning data set. 
And, but in the real world, you don't even know what it is you're solving. And mm. that's in a way kind of the fun thing is like, what, what, what problem are we even trying to solve? And it's, Oh, we want to, we want to predict page views. That's what we ultimately came up with is, Oh, so the more page views we get, the, the more users come on our platform and then they go through our conversion funnel and, and we get a low, a low, um, uh, acquisition rate for users, like a much lower. So what, what mm, okay. first, first thing was to look at, you know, what are the features, right? Like what, what can we, what are the signals, um, that are telling us, uh, you know, how to predict page views. And so that did, that, that actually was a very complex problem in a way for, for a few different reasons. One is that, you know, in, in general, again, if it's not a Kaggle data set where you're like, Oh, look, all my features are here. You know, like in this case, you don't you just don't, you just don't know. You and labels. Yeah. And labels. And yeah, it's like, let me just search through here and figure out what's happening. So even in the case of, let's say Twitter or Facebook, we had to, to, to carve through and look at, you know, what was interesting and what wasn't interesting. And, and, and one of the ones that, that really ultimately came, turned out to be very predictive was the median level of engagement, uh, you know, per, per athlete. It's, and I guess that would be for anybody on Twitter, but like the median level of likes, the median level of, of, um, uh, retweets. And the reason why median is so important is that if you look at just, you know, you just took necessarily, um, all of them, you get these outliers and it just blows up the data set. Um, because there are sometimes somebody gets lucky and they get like a giant retweet and it's like, ah, that just is not indicative of, of really their normal performance. Right. Um, so that's one part of it. Uh, and then, and then also trying to strengthen the signal by finding other sources like, for example, I, I eventually stumbled upon Wikipedia and realized that, wow, that this is a, well, in general, I would say I'm amazed that more people don't use Wikipedia as a data source. It's just amazing, but but definitely correlates very strongly with um, Twitter and Facebook. And so if you look at uh, Wikipedia page views and you look at Twitter engagement, Facebook engagement, they're very correlated. So Meaning you if just, you're looking at influencers on Twitter and Facebook that also have Wikipedia pages about them? That's you correct. can correlate them. Okay. Yes. Yeah. And 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 so those are all plugged into the model. And um, the other part that's again one of these cold start type or or, or real world. I wouldn't say it's cold. I guess yeah, it's a combination of cold start and real world problems. Is that is that um, it is non trivial to get you know let's say a thousand um, social media handles right. I mean you you have. You have um, athletes, for example, that have the same name. So Anthony Davis is one of the stars in the NBA right now for the Pelicans. And there was at one period of time an Anthony Davis in the NFL. And so it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it, even an intern would get tripped up by that. And so that was a very, very significant problem in that, you know, you're just going to get garbage results if you don't have really high quality control around the inputs that are going into your collection. So um, that one of the ways that we solved that was ultimately we, we landed upon uh, mechanical Turk. And so what we did was we created these mechanical Turk jobs that would, um, ask, let's say nine people who they thought the social media handles were Twitter handle, Facebook handle, Wikipedia handle. And let's say if seven of the nine agreed, I think that's what we figured out was like a good, a number for the quorum. Then we would, would select that handle and feed that into our um, job collection system, which would then go out and collect the raw data. And and then even that part of the problem is another uh, significant problem is that 
um, you know, Twitter APIs will blow up on you. Uh, you know, you get rate throttling. Facebook APIs will blow up on you. You know, you get bad data. So um, again, the the real world part of it is it ultimately it took maybe like a year to really get something where the jobs framework, the collection system, uh, you know, we're able to accurately you know get the handles and and re- regularly you know run run our collection algorithms and then and then all of that was again about a year and so the 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 whole 80 20 thing of you know cleaning the data and collecting it takes all it's for me is absolutely the truth in the real world i'd say even longer and then the model uh training the model is almost nothing wow and so the model output was it was a it was a predictor of the number of page views specifically or Correct. some That's intermediate yeah. Yeah, yeah, it pays you. So, okay. so basically, we could we could at that point um, feed in all those signals and figure out very accurately. I uh, forget off the top of my head what the root mean squared error was, but um, we had a pretty low root mean squared error, and we, you you basically knew exactly if you partnered with this person, they'd give you let's say a thousand page views per post. Huh. Interesting. Yeah, and then what's great about that is 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 that I don't know if it's changed. I've been out of the VC game for a little bit, but you know, if you look at um, cost per uh, cost per user, you know, we're getting users at like eighty cents a user. Okay, so you could back that into a cost per acquisition, cost per user, and then use that as part of your your fundraising and all that kind of stuff. Exactly. I mean, if you say a user's worth forty to eighty bucks or whatever, you know, it's like, hey, we can acquire them for a dollar, and then you know, every dollar you put in is it's a 40 time to 80 time return depending on you know how you value users. Mm. And so you, you went on from working on uh, this kind of uh, growth hacking type of application of machine learning and, and AI to developing some, or at least, you know, starting to think through ways that you could more uh, apply machine learning and AI kind of more to the core of the company's products. Is that right? Yeah. So then once once we realized that we really were onto something, uh, then we started to turn it into something we called athlete intelligent dashboard. And we were on the in the process of uh, and we had some some preliminary like kind of beta tools that were dashboards that an athlete or a team could look at and they would show them. They would, they would be able to see similar information to the information that we use for growth hacking. So they could they could see, you know, in relative terms, how did how does their team or how does their athlete or their whole roster of athletes, how do, how do they compare in social media? Like what do they rank? Um, how many page views would they give in a, in a campaign? Uh, who are their fans? What are some demographic information? And then as we started to sell things, we were also linking in um, sales data. So, you know, what's how many how many sale, how many items could this uh, athlete or team sell? And, you know, if if there's uh, a product that they were endorsing. OK. And then when we spoke uh, prior to starting the show, you mentioned uh, at least I took the note as uh, doing some work to predict the best players based on their fan social media engagement. Were you speaking of best in terms of best performing from a kind of marketing influencer perspective? Or was there a crossover to actual player on the field performance based on their fan engagement? Yeah. So after after the startup, you know, unfortunately, you know, ran out of cash and and some business deals didn't work out and and, and I left um, and ultimately they don't exist anymore. 
I, I still was thinking about the problem because it was a it was a really interesting problem. And over the last year, as I decided to write a book on this, and not exactly 100% the subject, but I, I was digging into it more and more. And one of the, the, the areas that I was interested in was, is that social media was able to predict, you know, basically uh, how many page views somebody could give to a platform and how many products. But I was curious whether it could also predict how good a player was and, in fact, even predict um, – you know, winning, winning, like, like, uh, how, you know, how many wins a, a player could bring to the team. And so uh, I, I've spent, I would say several months on this, this year. And the preliminary information I have is very promising. And that w- some of the conclusions so far are that it does appear that in the NBA, that, that, that owners will play, uh, will pay, um, versus points. And so anybody that's uh, a basketball um, statistics person knows that a points are not, I mean, they're, 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 they're a reasonable predictor of, of winning and, um, you know, playoff, playoff performance and things like that. But, but there's a lot more to it. And so players will be paid by, uh, in general, by the owners, you know, something like about a point, a million, a point. <laughs> so if you, you know, 10 points a game, you make 10 million, but, okay. but if you really dig into it, uh, one of the best measures of, of how productive a player is, is wins over essentially the wins over replacement or um, I think it's wins RPM. So how many wins are attributable specifically to you? And off the top of my head, I think LeBron James, for example, is a, is a perfect, you know, like an outlier in that I think it's something like 23 or 25 games, just, you know, there's what 70 something games in the NBA and just LeBron James himself to the Cleveland Cavaliers is like 23 games. So I mean, he's a, he basically puts him in the playoffs, just him, you know. And um, what I, so what I what I was digging into was, well, do fans engage more highly with um, uh, players who have high points, or or players who have um, you know better, let's say, say overall performance, like wins, like wins RPM. And it does appear that the that fans, and, and, you know, I have I don't have enough data to do, to collect this and. Maybe if somebody wants to hire me to do a year project on it, I would dig it for more. <laughs> but it, it does appear that that um, that that fans are are actually really good judges in terms of they like to engage with the best players. And and and, and if if you look at you know they're they're engaging lesser with the high the high point. I mean they're they're obviously engaging them. But if if you look at if you plot uh, you know wins over replacement versus points, you can see that fans more. Uh, are, are more engaged with the true players who are who are um, contributing to their overall team's performance. So, the, I guess the takeaways there. Again, this is still pretty pre- preliminary, and it's possible I'm I'm making some in, in, inaccurate conclusions. But the takeaways are that you know you could start to feed this into um, uh, you know betting algorithms, for example, or uh, fantasy you know, you know, your own fantasy team. And, and, uh, I think it's pretty fascinating again, that if you just look at w- Wikipedia, you know, it's got this free data set for you and it's got this incredible power to show you that, you know, that, that even with the page views, like if you look at page views, that, that it appears that, that the best players in terms of the true metrics, like wins, uh, wins RPM, they get, they get higher page views. than if you look at points, Hmm. 
And do you, is this a, is this something that you think might be, you know, granted you're early in, in the research here, but is this something that you think might be usable as a leading indicator, meaning helping teams find the next LeBron James or someone who's undervalued relative to what they're being paid now and help them kind of, uh, you know, take advantage of that kind of information in uh, draft type of situations or scouting types of situations? Or is it more, um, you know, what's happening on, you know, Wikipedia social media is an indication of what's happening now and, and not necessarily, you know, having predictive value? No, I think it could be a leading indicator. And, and let's let's take Conor McGregor, for example. So um, I will readily admit uh, I, I've been a, been a I would say a, a somewhat new fan to um, to the to MMA and UFC. And, you know, part of it was working at, at that company. But I remember when Conor McGregor came out, I thought, ah, you know, this this guy is a showboat. You know, he's he's going to get destroyed eventually. But the fans, if you look at the engagement, they must have known something because um, the the engagement level was just incredible in relative terms. And so I do think there's something there where, you know, the collective wisdom of fans who really know this local athlete Mm-hmm. Uh, really, really, sh- it says something like like they know something that other people don't know, and so it, it, in a way, I think it's a signal that absolutely you could use. And, and again, this would be a really fascinating project. It's to look at, let's say, NFL drafts and and look at the local engagement for, let's say, uh, players. And if you instead of looking at these BS stats like you know the forty yard dash and all these things that they've shown that have very little correlation to success in the NFL, I'd be interested if you plotted that against their social media engagement. If you would then show if that's predictive of their future success in the NFL. Hmm. Again, just a theory, but I, but I I have suspicions that there's something there. Are there players that are that have kind of an outsized? social media impact that doesn't correlate to wins or performance. So like the exact opposite of, you know, what we're uh, speculating about now, Um, a player that, you know, has, you know, super high social media engagement and, and potentially as a result of that brings super, uh, you know, a high value to a team from a kind of marketing and, and audience engagement perspective, but isn't necessarily a winning or high scoring player. Does that kind of scenario ring any bells? Yeah. I mean, I could, I could see how you could maybe do some clustering and you could, you could, you could maybe even classification, like you, you could, you could say there's, let's just off the top of my head, just, just kind of brainstorming here. But like you, you have Tim Tebow, you cluster, you know, like where like super, super engaged fans, but turns out not that good. And then you have, um, <laughs> and then you have another cluster, which is that super, super engaged fans. And it turns out that they're actually uh, above average, like significantly above average. So right, right. yeah, I, th- I think there is some, there is some, probably some, you know, there's a BCG matrix here. That's like your, your popular winners, your popular losers, your unpopular losers that you need to get rid of. And then your, uh, your winners that are unpopular that maybe are your, I don't know what you, what the cute names you would assign to these quadrants are, but you know, maybe those are your, you know, hidden gems or undervalued folks or something like that, that you need to figure out how to, you know, engage with, with fans or something. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 there's definitely, you know, there's definitely something there and it's surprising that uh, I have not heard more about it. 
Hmm. Yeah, I you know I've I have said on the podcast before that I'm not the the biggest sports fan uh, at all. Our producer is a huge sports fan, and so we uh, have a, have some interesting plans to do uh, some conversations around how machine learning and AI apply to sports. But I, I will say that my appreciation for sports, you know, multiplied by, you know, who knows how many orders of magnitudes after reading Moneyball. I thought that, that, you know, the treatment of um, Billy Bean and the A's and kind of understanding how he used this insight about a particular metric was being undervalued by the marketplace and really changed the way folks staff baseball teams. Um, I, that was amazing. That was fa- fantastic. Well, it and I, I I'm not a hundred percent sure how much I could talk about this, but Uh-oh. there I'll just talk, I'll say in rough terms that there was a company that w- were you know I knew of from when I used to play pickup basketball at Caltech um, with with the founder and um, he was working with some teams in the NBA and also with NFL and they they were looking at uh, motion tracking data and and actually they had algorithms that gave teams insights like uh, the center in the fourth quarter is going to just be horrible. So go at them, you know, or, mm. you know, it, it take this player has a horrible left hand. And so um, basically make them go left. And, and I won't, I won't say which teams or I, I don't know if I'm supposed to say it or not. So I will just, I'll just <laughs> leave it. But, but there definitely are, there definitely are um, there, there, this is happening um, in sports and there are, people that are using machine learning, uh, especially on like things like motion tracking data. And they do have some, some secret information that I'm sure is playing a, a role in the amount of wins they have. And so, you know, I, I think you can make an argument for teams, let's say the NBA, cause I have some, a little bit of inside information that maybe some of the teams that even we can think of off the top of our head, um, that, that have a lot of wins may have some secrets that, that that uh, they have algorithms that that let them have insights that other teams don't have, and so there, there's a little bit of a um, uh, a race, I guess. Uh, I, I don't I don't have all the info, but but I know a little bit. Yeah, you've got to imagine that the you know the popularization of Moneyball, if it wasn't already kind of an open secret that data can make a difference in sports, you know that kind of blew the top off and. Uh, now that uh, machine learning has become so much more accessible, um, you've got to imagine that any owner or general manager kind of worth their salt is at least experimenting with um, how to apply this both on the field, on the court, as well as in terms of the business, uh, ticket sales and advertising and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, well, and and. So that was that 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 actually does lead to a other area that I was doing a little bit of research on that again I I you know have, I would love to do more research on is how is the valuation of a team set uh, and what's interesting is in the NBA for example uh, the two most valued teams are the Los Angeles Lakers and the New York Knicks um, each are worth several billion dollars and if you look at their 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 um, records. I, I think the Lakers are a little better this year, but if you look at their records the last few years, it's, I mean, they're very bad. I mean, very bad. Right. And and what's interesting is that attendance really doesn't seem to be affected by this. Evaluate and and then if you dig into it, it's you know what are, what are, what are the things that predict the most 
uh, valuation of a team and that it, it's actually pretty boring so far as like, you know, things like what's the median home price and what's the population density. Yeah, so, was my immediate thought was mar- <laughs> market size when you mentioned those two teams. Yeah. So like if you live in a major metropolitan area with high real estate values, you're going to have a high, highly valued team. And so in a way, uh, maybe and, and I, I, I don't know how long. I know the Clippers, for example, I, don't, I forget how long Donald Sterling owned them, but they for so long were just a horrible team. I mean, I mean, just one of the worst teams in, in the NBA. But it, I guess if you're just strictly talking about um, an investment, yet maybe it doesn't even pay uh, in, in terms of valuation to do anything. Because if you're in Los Angeles, New York, San Francisco, you, and you're just there, you, you will just make money and people will show up. Yeah, but losing sucks. So you want to try to apply some of this stuff to to try to figure out how to win. If you're going to have to show up every day, you might as well try to win at least. Yeah. Well, I, I do wonder, though, if there's some teams like that are like that, where they just they just they, it's an investment or a vanity thing. And they just I mean, like the Clippers come to mind. If you if you know, if you, you you've been an NBA fan, like there was a period for like 10 or 20 years, I think, where they're in Los Angeles. And you're like, how how can you be this bad? It's like you're trying to be this bad, but I guess if you look at the the Clippers when they were sold, there was a um, pretty substantial profit, and so yeah, that that, that that's kind of a, another <laughs> in, yeah, it's another, kind of like the sports in, equivalent of like a self storage facility. It's like it's, yeah, this is or a parking lot. It's like this is a real estate play. It has nothing to do with uh, actually providing the service. Yeah. So, so yeah, I think, I think that the, the more interesting part of the story may be that if you look at, um, and I, and I have some, uh, I, in, in the talk I did, I, I showed some 3d graphs about this, but like, if you look at some of the cheaper teams, like, uh, I don't know, Dallas or Houston, and, and you can, you can look at those and go, you know, if you were rich enough to buy a team, like that's maybe where you'd want to buy a team is, is, is somewhere where they have lots of wins, but they're very, very low valued versus if again if you cared about performance mm-hmm. but if if you just wanted to make a real estate play then yeah try to buy buy low at in, in los angeles or, or new york mm-hmm. uh, so we've talked about a bunch of uh, ideas along these lines uh, but i'm curious if you've got uh if you've got others in mind if you're a data scientist practicing hobbyist whatever and you're also interested in sports uh, what are some areas that you think are ripe for, you know, experimentation and research? Where do you think folks could go in and have some fun and, and maybe, you know, make an interesting difference? Yeah, so I, I do have some off the top of my head. Um, in the last five years in particular, I've really gotten into Brazilian jiu-jitsu and um, it got me really interested more in the UFC, which is because uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu is a pretty big component of it. And uh, one of the things that does seem like it's massively ripe for uh, data scientists, hobbyist data scientists, is the the um, machine learning around um, things like uh, submissions, for example. So, hmm. you know, uh, the, the, what's really interesting is that if you just look and you plot the submissions uh, for the last 20 years, I think I have a project where I did this. They're like a rear naked choke is the number one one and I don't know. That's like arm bar and uh, and a triangle, you know, a leg triangle are, are you know coming next. But what's really I think could be very interesting is 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 the chain effect of it, is it is a rear naked choke the best 
high percentage um, submission because you started with that or or did you start with a bunch of other submissions? And so I, I think there could be uh, a lot of interesting things that could happen in terms of, you know, what 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 are the chain of submissions that someone would try uh, and, and are there sequences like almost like a, a Pac-Man game? I don't know if you remember in the 80s, there was a, maybe I'm too old, but um, for people to remember this, but there, there was, I remember when I was a little kid and, and I used to play Pac-Man, I bought this book that was like how to cheat at Pac-Man. Uh-huh. And it, there was literally a screen that you went through and then you could beat every, every screen for a while. Right. And I could, I could think, I, I could see how in the same thing with jujitsu, how maybe there's, there's some moves that work in certain situations. And, and I, so it, it seems like there's <laughs> like, those like, at the Konami code, like up, up, down, down. Yeah, right, yeah, right. Exactly. yeah. So I, I would be very curious if like, if, if that, that's, that's one area. Um, you know, another one too would, would just be some of the really interesting statistics that have been generated in other sports like baseball and NBA because they're so popular. You know, I, I, those those things haven't really been applied to um, the UFC or Bellator, or these these mixed martial arts forums. And so, you know, f- even from a financial perspective, uh, I could imagine there could be a lot of money made by somebody going in and, and really figuring out, you know, who is the best player. Or, or who are the best fighters in the UFC and who are, you know, what are the best techniques? And, um, yeah, I, I think that, that in particular is a, is a, is a very interesting one. Um, I also think in terms of, um, other sports like track and field, I think are, are, are also, um, there's, there's some things that if I was independently wealthy, I would pursue. Like one of them is like, what is the, optimal amount of training and what's the best periodization schedule for let's say track athletes like a 400 meter runner a 200 meter runner and i i think there's a lot of uh ground that can be covered in i guess the way i would classify it as like a a ways for fitness where Mm. you you have something that's constantly telling you the right thing to do and the thing that's interesting about the human body is that there it it's it's not a linear relationship like oh i just exercise more and then i get better there 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 there's these really complex things that are happening and and that's why periodization is is so effective is you know you do let's say a, a really st- a strength cycle in in track for example and then you go on an endurance cycle and and so i i think that's a period that's a that's a um an area where where machine learning artificial intelligence can can play a a, a really significant role and it hasn't, to my knowledge, there there hasn't been a lot of traction there. Interesting. I did an interview with uh, with Ilka Korhonen, who is a technology VP at Firstbeat, which is the company who like they have their their models embedded into a lot of the fitness watches um, for like doing analytics on the heartbeat and the heartbeat rate, but there but the heartbeat interval. Uh, I forget the the name of the specific acronym, but they do in addition to their business where they sell these you know models and IP to the watchmakers, they also have this like pro athlete training or insight or whatever business where they will apply that data to like that. I think their stuff is what allows a lot of the watchmakers to now produce like VO two max and and um, some of these. Uh, some of these other metrics off of the heart rate data from the watches and the VO two max, I think has something to do with like 
training and rest intervals and stuff like that. Um, so if anyone wants to take on that challenge, check out uh, Twimble Talk number 106. Uh, any other ideas? You know, I think I think the other one that's I guess somewhat somewhat related is is just in terms of um, nutrition as well. So my my background, my undergraduate degree is in nutritional science, and I still haven't let go of of a lot of the ideas that I learned. And I think another one again is is that I have not seen this yet is is machine learning around nutrition. And the closest I've seen is there's some longitudinal studies that came out last several years about, I think it was, there's a nurse study that was 20 or 30 year period where they, they, they showed the predictive power of, of a food in terms of how much weight you would have. So if you, if you eat more, um, yogurts, you over a five year period, the more servings of yogurt you eat, the, the lower your body weight, the more servings of, um, nuts you eat, the lower your body weight, the more servings of Coke, uh, chips, the higher your body weight. And, and so, I could see again from just athletes and just regular people that um, you know you could you could basically have something that's constantly again very non-intuitive and I think this is where AI comes in. You could you could you could basically constantly be telling someone you, you can you could actually have forecasts like you could forecast based on on what somebody's eating what they're going to weigh right and it's, so it's, so you're not counting calories you're not. You're, you're literally just telling someone constantly like, yeah, here's your, here's your forecast for a year from now based on yeah. what I, what I've seen you doing. So if you want the forecast to go down, you know, you need to be there. Here's, four, here's four choices. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. That makes me think of, um, you know, it'd be cool to have an app that like you just, and I, I've seen when, when we were at the peak of the quantified self thing, I've seen versions of this, but I don't think they have the AI stuff on the back end and access to all the sensor data. But an app where you just rate kind of how you feel on, you know, a handful of dimensions, like physically, mentally, whatever, uh, happiness. And then it looks at your historical rating patterns, your sleep patterns from your watch or other, you know, sensors, pillow sensors that they're selling now, all that kind of stuff, your diet that you put into, uh, uh, your tracking app and just tells you, you know what, this spaghetti is going to taste really good, but you're going to be crabby as hell tomorrow or whatever. Um, and just make some simple predictions based on that. Or, you know, you're, you know, it's, it's 1130. You, you want to stay up another half an hour to work on this project or finish this movie or something like that, but you're going to feel like crap tomorrow. Yeah. I, I, I do think that is the future of AI and those are the kind of things that I personally am interested in for this next decade of my life is, is that, that AI assistant where, where it, it, there are things that are not easily thought about the, the brain is, is just not good at. Mm-hmm. And I, I think things like health, nutrition, sleep, all, you know, driving all, all there's all, there's all these things where, where algorithms can do it better. Mm-hmm. So I, I do think that's going to actually be a significant uh, impact on humanity in a positive way. Mm, mm. Awesome. Uh, before I let you go, if I may, uh, you are in the final stages of getting a book out the door. Is that right? Yeah. So I, I spent about the last year working on a book called uh, Pragmatic AI. Um, and the premise of the book is that 
that there's a lot of AI, like like many of the conversations we had here, that that is is very straightforward and practical, and that it should just be done. Versus uh, AI is not just self-driving cars that are fully autonomous. And in addition, that uh, the cloud uh, plays a big role in, um, in in getting things into production. When are you expecting that to hit the shelves? I think it's June. So I, I, I'm in technical review this week. So then it goes into production. So yeah, I think I think June, I, I believe, is when it gets on the shelves. And is it a hands-on, practical coding kind of book, or you know, this is the opportunity landscape, higher level kind of book? No, it's super, super hands-on. So uh, there's examples of um, doing, you know, for example, the social media stuff we talked about. There's there's a whole exploration with code on that. Um, there's a, how to analyze a GitHub project and figure out, you know, what's wrong with your team. <laughs> um, and then there's solutions for AWS, um, Azure, uh, Google Cloud, TPUs. Like, so yeah, very, very um, hands-on with code examples. Mostly in Python, there's a little bit of R and a lot of Jupyter Notebooks. Okay. Oh, very cool. Uh, well, I will uh, keep an eye out for that. But I appreciate you taking the time to, to jump on the call and to, to chat with you. I enjoyed, uh, enjoyed learning about what you're up to. Yeah, thank you so much for inviting me. And um, I'm uh, looking forward to listening to more of your shows. Awesome. Thanks so much, Noah. Okay, talk to you later. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. For more information on Noah or any of the topics covered in this episode, head on over to twimlai.com slash talk slash 158. To follow along with our AI and sports series, visit twimlai.com slash AI and sports. If you're a fan of the podcast, you know we'd like to encourage you to head on over to iTunes or wherever you grab your podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and review. They are super helpful as we push to grow this show and the community. As always, thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.